Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a beautiful early morning. There's a little bit of a breeze this morning. You can hear my chimes out front. The wind's blowing in from through my garden, up from the gully, through the bay trees. It's just beautiful out. Early morning. I love it before it gets too light. And the air is still fresh and full of energy, right? We've been told that the early morning air has electrical energies that can do healing to us if we really <clears throat> open up the windows and breathe it in. I remember uh, reading somewhere that in the days when Ellen White was alive, there were people who shut up their houses and, and because they were afraid of the night air. And she said, well, if they're not going to breathe the night air, I would like to know what they are going to breathe. Ah, I had to laugh. Okay, this morning, now we're going to start a study on the Great Adversary. I'll give you the titles. The first is the Great Adversary. The second, Fall of Satan. The third, Fall of Satan. And Ancient Spiritualism. And then Modern Spiritualism. And then, of course, after that, we'll study the Holy Spirit. But we don't want to glorify Satan, but we want to understand our adversary and what things that if this study can reveal that can help us to protect ourselves. So let's start with prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you, Lord, for opening up our eyes to those things that we need to avoid and how to protect ourselves from, from evil. Thank you that you have given us protection and that your presence is always with us, Lord, and help us not to choose to leave your side. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to begin by going to the book of Ezekiel. We have quite a bit to study there. The true character of the usurper, his real object, it must be understood by all. Ezekiel 28:15. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. He was perfect when he was created. So some people say that God created evil and that it was all his fault, and that there's some sort of balance of evil and good in the universe, and that without evil you couldn't appreciate good, all these kinds of things. But the Bible doesn't say those kinds of things, does it? He was perfect until evil was found in him, and God gave, even them, he gave them all freedom of choice to choose, and he chose. The next is Ezekiel 28, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 35, tells us a little bit about it. So long as all created beings acknowledged the allegiance of love, there was perfect harmony throughout the universe of God. It was the joy of the heavenly host to fulfill the purpose of their creator. They delighted in reflecting his glory and showing forth his praise. And while love to God was supreme, love for one another was confiding and unselfish. There was no note of discord to mar the celestial harmony, but a change came over this happy state. There was one who perverted the freedom that God had granted to his creatures. God granted them freedom, and he perverted that freedom. So I guess sin could be considered a perversion, couldn't it? Sin originated with him, who, next to Christ, 
had been the most honored of God and was highest in power and glory among the inhabitants of heaven. I'm just going to point out here that it says that he was next to Christ. He was the first created being, actually. And so who was there before him? God and Jesus. There's no third party mentioned here. Satan was next to Christ. Some people say, well, that means that Satan's the Holy Spirit. Well, no, actually. God's spirit. God is a spirit. That's what the Bible tells us. God is spirit. All right, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that subject. Just pointing it out that he was next to Christ, the first created being. Let's see. Sin originated with him who, next to Christ, had been most honored of God and was highest in power and glory among the inhabitants of heaven. He was the highest in heaven. Lucifer, son of the morning, was first of the covering cherubs. It was his job to cover God's glory like a veil, holy and undefiled. He stood in the presence of the great creator and the ceaseless beams of glory enshrouding the eternal God rested upon him. Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. And I just had a question kind of rise up in my mind. It says here that, he had been in Eden, the garden of God. Does that mean then that when Jesus created our planet, that God put his garden on the planet and that was going to be their home? That's so dear. Anyway, I don't know that, okay? It just came up in my mind, but let's see. So he was the covering cherub, Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. So he um, he corrupted his wisdom. Corruption is another word for death. Because remember Jesus um, died, but he did not see corruption. His body didn't rot. Um, so corruption. Hmm. That might take some looking into, actually. I don't, I haven't studied that thought, but he corrupted his wisdom. His wisdom was corrupted. Huh, crazy. Pride ruined his wisdom. Wow. Pride is so bad, isn't it? Isaiah 14, verse 13. Now we're going to go to Isaiah 14. Verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Wow, God had stars, the stars of God. He must have, his throne was so high up in the stars. I don't know. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. That's the true king of the north, right? He coveted a higher position. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 36. I'm looking for the right paragraph. Um, page 36. He coveted a higher position. 
Okay. The king of the universe summoned the heavenly host before him that in their presence he might set forth the true position of his son. Jesus, or it was Michael at that time, but he was God's son before he came to this earth. And show the relation he sustained to all created beings. The Son of God shared the Father's throne and the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled them both. That tells us something right there. About the throne gathered the holy angels, a vast unnumbered throng, 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, the most exalted angels as ministers and subjects, rejoicing in the light that fell upon them from the presence of the deity. Before the assembled inhabitants of heaven, the king declared that none but Christ, the only begotten of God, could fully enter into his purposes. Okay, now remember, Satan was the next in power and authority and beauty to Jesus, the highest next one to Jesus. It was only God the Father and Jesus. And he just declared here that none but Christ could enter into, fully enter into his purposes, and to him it was committed to execute the mighty counsels of his will. The Son of God had wrought the Father's will in the creation of all the hosts of heaven, and to him, as well as to God, their homage and allegiance were due. Christ was still to exercise divine power in the creation of the earth, us and its inhabitants, us, <laughs> but in all this he would not seek power or exaltation for himself contrary to God's plan, but would exalt the Father's glory and execute his purposes of beneficence and love. That very clearly shows God's order. God himself, the self-existent one, and his only begotten Son <coughs> are the Godhead. All right. Let's see. I'm sorry. I don't want to get sidetracked. So, Satan coveted a higher position, didn't he? He wanted be above the stars of uh, above I forgot how that was stated let me read that again Isaiah 14 13 um, for thou hast said in thine heart I will send into heaven I will exalt my throne above the stars of God I will sit on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north wow okay it sounds like that where the congregation gathers God has a mountain that his throne is on and uh, that was a place of height that Lucifer wanted to attain to. Isaiah 14, 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He coveted the throne of God. Revelation 12, 7 tells us. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So it was Jesus against Satan, wasn't it? Or Michael. Against the dragon and his angels. Other angels were affected. We read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 37, that... Hmm. leaving his place in the immediate presence of the Father. Now, that took a decision, didn't it? He left his place of employment. He left in the immediate presence of the Father. He went forth 
who diffused a spirit of discontent among the angels. He worked with mysterious secrecy. Did he not think God knew what he was doing? And for a time he concealed his real purpose under an appearance of reverence for God. Look how much he was uh, presuming upon God's love and tenderness towards him. God had always treated him so well that he had the kind of confidence that he could go do this. He left the presence of God. He went out to diffuse a spirit of discontent with mysterious secrecy, concealing his purpose under an appearance of reverence. He began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that governed heavenly beings, intimating that though laws might be necessary for the inhabitants of the worlds, angels, being more exalted, needed no such restraint, for their own wisdom was a sufficient guide. They were not beings that could bring dishonor to God. All their thoughts were holy. It was no more possible for them than for God himself to err. Err. The exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who, it was claimed, was also entitled to reverence and honor. If this prince of angels could but attain to his true exalted position, great good would accrue to the entire host of heaven, and thus the beginning of politics, right? For it was his object to secure freedom for all, but now even the liberty which they had hitherto enjoyed was at an end, for an absolute ruler had been appointed them, and to his authority all must pay homage. Such were the subtle deceptions that through the wiles of Lucifer were fast obtaining in the heavenly courts. Wow. And 39 tells us, In great mercy, according to his divine character, God bore long with Lucifer. The spirit of discontent and disaffection had never before been known in heaven. It was a new element, strange, mysterious, unaccountable. Lucifer himself had not at first been acquainted with the real nature of his feelings. For a time he had feared to express the workings and imaginings of his mind, yet he did not dismiss them. He did not see whether he was drifting, but such efforts as infinite love and wisdom only could devise, they were made to convince him of his error. His disaffection was proved to be without cause, and he was made to see what would be the result of persisting in revolt. revolt. Now, it's important to see that now, ever since Lucifer was created, I don't, we don't even know how many millennia went by, how long he lived before this happened. But he had seen God intimately. He knew God intimately. There was nothing more that God could show him for him to have a change of heart and repent and be reformed and redeemed. But with us, when we fell, we, we hadn't known God that well. God gave us another chance for um, another... I can't think of the right word for some reason. It's okay. Anyway, so I'm just pointing out that Lucifer, there was nothing more that could be shown him. Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong. He saw that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. That the divine statutes are just, that he ought to acknowledge them as, much, as such before all heaven. Had he done this, he might have saved himself and many angels. He had not at that time fully cast off his allegiance to God, though... He had left his position as covering cherub. Yet, if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and satisfied to fill the place appointed him in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in his office. It hadn't gone so far that he couldn't have um, been restored. 
The time had come for a final decision. He must fully yield to divine sovereignty or sovereignty or place himself in open rebellion. Okay, so he that was the that was right there. Oh, that's the secret. Okay. Open rebellion. Before open rebellion, God can work with us to restore us. But once we step into open rebellion, you know, I have read that um, there is no cure for that kind of rebellion. He nearly reached the decision to return, but pride forbade him. It was too great a sacrifice for one who had been so highly honored to confess that he had been an error, that his imaginings were false, and to yield to the authority which he had been working to prove unjust. Oh, my pride. Maybe that's why God hates pride. It really separates us from him, doesn't it? Let's go to Testimonies, Volume 3, page 328. There are ever to be found those who will sympathize with those who are wrong. Satan had sympathizers in heaven and took a large number of the angels with him. God and Christ and heavenly angels were on one side, Satan on the other. Notwithstanding the infinite power and majesty of God in Christ, angels became disaffected. The insinuations of Satan took effect, and they really came to believe that the Father and the Son were their enemies, and that Satan was their benefactor. Satan has the same power and the same control over minds now, only it has increased a hundredfold by exercise and experience. He has honed his practice, hasn't he? Men and women today are deceived, blinded by his insinuations and devices, and they know it not. By giving place to doubts and unbelief in regard to the work of God, by cherishing feelings of distrust, cruel jealousies, they are preparing themselves for complete deception. They rise up with bitter feelings against the ones who dare to speak of their errors and reprove their sins. So, yeah, all you have to do to suddenly become someone's enemy is to point out one of their sins, reprove them. Or speak of their error, even if you do it ever so gently or kindly for their good. No, no. You are immediately the enemy. Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. Michael, one who is like God. That's what that name means. It's lovely. They fought. Wow. Christ and loyal angels fought against Satan and his angels. Revelation 12, verse 8. And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. Satan was defeated. Isaiah 14, 12. Tells us. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Satan was cast out of heaven. The Tower of Ages, page 493. There are Christians who think and speak altogether too much about the power of Satan. They think of their adversary, they pray about him, they talk about him. He looms up greater and greater in their imagination. It is true that Satan is a powerful being, but, thank God, we have a mighty Savior who cast out the evil one from heaven. Satan is pleased when we magnify his power. Why not talk of Jesus? 
Why not magnify his love, power, and his love? So he was cast out of heaven. And that says that Michael, or Jesus, was the one who cast Satan out of heaven. Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Hmm. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 41. So as far as Satan was concerned, it was true that he had now gone too far to return. But not so with those who had been blinded by his deceptions. To them, the counsel and entreaties of the loyal angels opened a door of hope. And had they heeded that warning, they might have broken away from the snare of Satan. But pride, love for their leader, and the desire for unrestricted freedom were permitted to bear sway, and the pleadings of divine love and mercy were finally rejected. God permitted Satan to carry forward his work until the spirit of disaffection ripened into active revolt. It was necessary for his plans to be fully developed so that their true nature and tendency might be seen by all. See, God is transparent. Everybody needs to see and choose and use their wisdom. Lucifer, as the anointed cherub, had been highly exalted. He was greatly loved by the heavenly beings, and his influence over them was strong. God's government included not only the inhabitants of heaven, but of all the worlds that he had created. That's God's government included all the inhabitants of heaven and the worlds that he had created. Lucifer had concluded that if he could carry the angels of heaven with him in rebellion, he could carry also all the worlds. He had artfully presented his side of the question, employing sophistry and fraud to secure his objects. His power to deceive was very great. By disguising himself in a cloak of falsehood, he had gained an advantage. All his acts were so clothed with mystery that it was difficult to disclose to the angels the true nature of his work until fully developed. It could not be made to appear the evil thing it was. Why? Because they had never seen sin before, had they? They didn't know what it was. His disaffection would not be seen to be rebellion. Even the loyal angels could not fully discern his character or see to what his work was leading. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 41, says his angels were cast out with him. Revelation 12, 9 says they were cast to this earth. We just read that. They were cast to this earth. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. He caused our first parents to sin. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So there's so much in that that I can't really go into it too much, except to say that Satan promised her that she would become a spirit and dwell in heaven as God if she disobeyed God and ate that fruit. He's the one who said that she would have immortality, didn't he? Because they had to depend on the tree of life to stay alive until they passed their test, and then they would be made secure. But they didn't pass their test, did they? They failed it. That, that was the test. That was the test, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They failed it. He caused our first parents to sin. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 53 to 59, tells the story Like the angels, the dwellers in Eden had been placed upon probation. Their happy estate could be retained only on condition of fidelity to the Creator's law. They could obey and live, or disobey and perish. God had made them the recipients of rich blessings, but should they disregard His will, He who spared not the angels that sinned could not spare them. Transgression would forfeit His gifts and bring upon them misery and ruin. Why? Because without God, that's all that they could have. All good comes from God. The angels warned them to be on their guard against the devices of Satan, for his efforts to ensnare them would be unwearied. While they were obedient to God, the evil one could not harm them, for, if need be, every angel in heaven would be sent to their help. If they steadfastly repelled his first insinuations, they would be as secure as the heavenly messengers. But should they once yield to temptation... Their nature would become so depraved that in themselves they would have no power and no disposition to resist Satan. Now here is the key and the secret. Their nature became depraved from sin. It changed them. And then that's all they had to give to their children was a depraved nature. The tree of knowledge, you might look up that word depraved and see what it means. The tree of knowledge had been made a test of their obedience and their love to God. The Lord had seen fit to lay upon them but one prohibition. As to the use of all that was in the garden, if they should disregard his will in this particular, they would incur the guilt of transgression. Satan was not to follow them with continual temptations. He could have access to them only at the forbidden tree. Now see, that's totally fair, isn't it? The one thing they were told not to do was the only place Satan could go. And if they stayed away from there, they would have no problem. Should they attempt to investigate its nature, they would be exposed to his wiles. They were admonished to give careful heed to the warning which God had sent them and to be content with the instruction which he had seen fit to impart. In order to accomplish his work unperceived, Satan chose to employ as his medium the serpent, a disguise well adapted for his purpose of deception. The serpent was then one of the wisest and most beautiful creatures on the earth. It had wings, and while flying through the air, 
presented an appearance of dazzling brightness, having the color and brilliancy of burnished gold, resting in the rich laden branches of the forbidden tree, and regaling itself with a delicious fruit, it was an object to arrest the attention and delight the eye of the beholder. Thus in the garden of peace lurked the destroyer, watching for his prey. The angels had cautioned Eve to beware of separating herself from her husband while occupied in their daily labor in the garden. With him she would be in less danger from temptation than if she were alone. But absorbed in her pleasing task, she unconsciously wandered from his side. On perceiving that she was alone, she felt an apprehension of danger, but dismissed her fears, deciding that she had sufficient wisdom and strength to discern evil and to withstand it. Unmindful of the angel's caution, she soon found herself gazing with mingled curiosity and admiration upon the forbidden tree. The fruit was very beautiful, and she questioned within herself, why had God withheld it from them? Now was the tempter's opportunity, as if he were able to discern the workings of her mind. He addressed her, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Eve was surprised and startled as she thus seemed to hear the echo of her thoughts. But the serpent continued in a musical voice with a subtle praise of her surpassing loveliness, and his words were not displeasing. Instead of fleeing from the spot, she lingered wonderingly to hear a serpent speak. Had she been addressed by a being like the angels, her fears would have been excited, but she had no thought that a fascinating serpent would become the medium of the fallen foe. To the tempters, Ensnaring question, she replied, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. By partaking of this tree, he declared they would attain to a more exalted sphere of existence, like the spirit, like God, and enter a broader field of knowledge. He himself had eaten of the forbidden fruit, and as a result had acquired the power of speech. And he insinuated the Lord jealously desired to withhold it from them, lest they should be exalted to equality with himself. It was because of its wonderful properties imparting wisdom and power that he had prohibited them from tasting or even to touching it. The tempter intimated that the divine warning was not to be actually fulfilled. In other words, God would not actually kill you or let you die. It was designed merely to intimidate them. How could it be possible for them to die? See, again, he's insinuating they have immortality. Had they not eaten of the tree of life? God had been seeking to prevent them from reaching a nobler development and finding greater happiness. The tree of life was necessary. They had to eat of it all the time to stay alive. But they had great vitality as evidenced by how long it took for them to actually die once they stopped eating it. Satan, oh, Such has been Satan's work from the days of Adam to the present. He has pursued it with great success. He tempts men to distrust God's love and to doubt his wisdom. He's constantly seeking to excite a spirit of irreverent curiosity, a restless, inquisitive desire to penetrate the secrets of divine wisdom and power. 
in their efforts to search out what God has been pleased to withhold. Multitudes overlook the truth which he has revealed and which are essential to salvation. Now, this is what she did. The truth he revealed was that if she were to disobey and eat of that tree, she would they would die. They did die to God that day. And in the Bible later on, Paul says that he wants them to be alive to the law and or, or dead to the dead to sin and alive to God. And so that day they became dead to God and alive to sin, didn't they? They became depraved. Their nature did. Okay, back to the book. Satan tempts men to disobedience by leading them to believe they are entering a wonderful field of knowledge. This is a deception. Elated with their ideas of progression, they are, by trampling on God's requirements, setting their feet in the path that leads to degradation and death. Satan represented to the holy pair that they would be gainers by breaking the law of God. Do we not today hear similar reasoning? Many talk of the narrowness of those who obey God's commandments, while they themselves claim to have broader ideas and to enjoy greater liberty. What is this but an echo of the voice from Eden? In the day ye eat thereof, transgress the divine requirement, ye shall be as gods. Satan claimed to have received great good by eating of the forbidden fruit. He did not let it appear that by transgression he had actually become an outcast from heaven. Though he had found sin to result in an infinite loss, he concealed his own misery in order to draw others into the same position. So now, the transgressor seeks to disguise his true character. He may claim to be holy, but his exalted profession only makes him the more dangerous as a deceiver. He's on the side of Satan, trampling upon the law of God and leading others to do the same. To their eternal ruin. Eve really believed the words of Satan. Her belief did not save her from the penalty of sin. She disbelieved the words of God, and this was which led to her fall. Just as we have discussed before, it's not believing a lie that causes you to be lost, but it's disbelieving what God tells you, what is truth. If you disbelieve God, this is the problem. Remember, Israelites could not enter in because of unbelief. God told them they could go into the promised land. They did not believe. In the judgment, men will not be condemned because they conscientiously believed a lie, but because they did not believe the truth, because they neglected the opportunity of learning what is truth, notwithstanding the sophistry of Satan. To the contrary, it is always disastrous to disobey God. We must set our hearts to know what is truth. All the lessons which God has caused to be placed on record in his word are for our warnings and for our instruction. They are given to save us from deception. Their neglect will result in ruin to ourselves. Whatever contradicts God's word, we may be sure, proceeds from Satan. The serpent plucked the fruit of the forbidden tree and placed it in the hands of the half-reluctant Eve. Then he reminded her of her own words that God had forbidden them to touch it, lest they die. She would receive no more harm from eating the fruit, he declared, than from touching it. Perceiving no evil results from what she had done, Eve grew bolder when she saw that the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and she did eat. It was grateful to the taste, and as she ate, she seemed to feel a vivifying power and imagined herself entering upon a higher state of existence. Without fear, she plucked and ate, and now, having herself transgressed, 
she became the agent of Satan in working the ruin of her husband. In a state of strange, unnatural excitement, with her hands filled with the forbidden fruit, she sought his presence and related all that had occurred. An expression of sadness came over the face of Adam. He appeared astonished and alarmed. To the words of Eve, he replied, This must be the foe against whom they had been warned, and by the divine sentence she must die. In answer, she urged him to eat, repeating the words of the serpent, that they should not surely die. She reasoned this must be true, for she felt no evidence of God's displeasure. On the contrary, she realized a delicious, exhilarating influence, thrilling every faculty with new life, such she imagined as inspired the heavenly messengers. Adam understood that his companion had transgressed the command of God, disregarded the only prohibition laid upon them as a test of their fidelity and love. There was a terrible struggle in his mind. He mourned that he had permitted Eve to wander from his side, but now the deed was done. He must be separated from her, whose society had been his joy. How could he have it thus? Adam had enjoyed the companionship of God and of holy angels. He had looked upon the glory of the Creator. He understood the high destiny open to the human race, should they remain faithful to God, yet, see, oh, there's a wonderful destiny open to the people who are loyal to God and faithful to God. We even, we're going to have it again when we pass this probation here. Let's do it, brothers and sisters. Let us not fail. Yet all these blessings were lost sight of in the fear of losing that one gift which in his eyes outvalued every other. Love, gratitude, loyalty to the Creator, all were overborne by love to Eve. She was a part of himself. He could not endure the thought of separation. He did not realize that the same infinite power who had from the dust of the earth created him a living, beautiful form, and had in love given him a companion by taking from his own rib to create him a companion, he could supply her place by creating him another one. He resolved to share her fate. If she must die, he would die with her. After all, he reasoned, might not the words of this wise serpent be true? Eve was before him as beautiful and apparently as innocent as before this act of disobedience. I can't help but wonder, when did their robe of light disappear and all of a sudden they could see each other's nakedness? and in their fallen condition have sexual desire activated, and um, how many difficult things they had going against them from sin. But anyways, back to my book. She expressed greater love for him than before. No sign of death appeared in her, and he decided to brave the consequences. He seized the fruit and quickly ate it. After his transgression, Adam at first imagined himself entering upon a higher state of existence, but soon the thought of his sin filled him with terror. The air, which had hitherto been of a mild and uniform temperature, it seemed to chill the guilty pair. The love and peace which had been theirs, it was gone, and in its place they felt a sense of sin, a dread of the future, a nakedness of soul. The robe of light which had enshrouded them now disappeared. Okay, so that's when it disappeared, after he ate it. And to supply its place, they endeavored to fashion for themselves, which kind of fits, because he was... Um, he was the ruler of the world under Christ, or under Michael. And Eve was a part of himself, actually. So what he did was for both of them. So when he did it, that was when they had their fall. And he did it by choice. She was deceived, sadly. Wow. Okay, and to supply its place, they endeavored to fashion for themselves a covering. For they could not, while unclothed, meet the eye of God and the holy angels. They now began to see... 
Yeah, they couldn't look God in the eye while standing there naked. Oh, how shameful. They now began to see the true character of their sin. Adam reproached his companion for her folly and leaving his side, permitting himself to be deceived by the serpent. But they both flattered themselves that he who had given them so many evidences of his love, he would pardon this one transgression, or that they would not be subjected to so dire a punishment as they had feared. Just imagine Satan exulted in his success. He had tempted the woman to distrust God's love, to doubt his wisdom, and to transgress his law. And through her, he had caused the overthrow of Adam. But the great lawgiver was about to make known to Adam and Eve the consequences of their transgression. Oh, he was about to tell them that he would have to die for them. Oh, my. The divine presence was manifested in the garden. In their innocence and holiness, they had joyfully welcomed the approach of their creator. But now they fled in terror and sought to hide. Oh, I must feel like crying. In the deepest recesses of the garden, but the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? Adam could neither deny nor excuse his sin, but instead of manifesting penitence, he endeavored to cast a blame upon his wife, and thus upon God himself. The woman that thou gavest me, she, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. He who from love to Eve had deliberately chosen to forfeit the approval of God, his home in paradise, and eternal life of joy, could now, after his fall, endeavor to make his companion, and even the Creator himself, responsible for the transgression. See, his nature was depraved. So terrible is the power of sin. When the woman was asked, What is this thou hast done? She answered, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Why? Why did you create the serpent? Why did you suffer him to enter Eden? These were the questions implied in her excuse for her sin. Thus, like Adam, she charged God with the responsibility of their fall. The spirit of self-justification originated in the father of lies. It was indulged by our first parents as soon as they yielded to the influence of Satan and has been exhibited by all the sons and daughters of Adam. Instead of humbly confessing their sins, they try to shield themselves by casting the blame upon others, upon circumstances, or upon God, making even his blessings an occasion of murmuring against him. Wow. The Lord then passed sentence upon the serpent. This is the first covenant with them. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Since it had been employed as Satan's medium, the serpent was to share the visitation of divine judgment. From the most beautiful and admired of the creatures of the field, it was to become the most groveling and detested of them all, feared and hated by both man and beast. The words next addressed to the serpent applied directly to Satan himself, pointing forward to his ultimate defeat and destruction. God's covenant with us, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, or her seed shall bruise Satan's head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Eve was told of the, that was the covenant that Jesus would come, and um, though his heel would be bruised, he would crush Satan's head. Eve was told of the sorrow and pain that must henceforth be her portion. And the Lord said, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. In the creation, God had made her equal of Adam. 
the equal of Adam. Had they remained obedient to God in harmony with his great law of love, they would ever have been in harmony with each other, but sin had brought discord, and now their union could only be maintained in harmony preserved by submission on the part of the one or the other. Eve had been the first in transgression. She had fallen into temptation by separating from her companion contrary to the divine direction. It was her solicitations that Adam sinned. She was now placed in subjection to her husband. Had the principles enjoyed in the law of God been cherished by the fallen race, this sentence, though growing out of the results of sin, would have proved a blessing to them. But man's abuse of the supremacy thus given him has too often rendered the lot of woman very bitter and made her life a burden. Eve had been perfectly happy by her husband's side in her Eden home, but like restless modern Eve, she was flattered with the hope of entering a higher sphere than that which God had assigned her. In attempting to rise above her original position, she fell far below it. A similar result will be reached by all who are unwilling to take up cheerfully their life duties in accordance with God's plan. In their efforts to reach positions for which he has not fitted them, many are leaving vacant the place where they might be a blessing. In their desire for a higher sphere, many have sacrificed true womanly dignity and nobility of character and have left undone the very work that heaven appointed them. Okay. It was a long reading, quite interesting. We're almost finished. Three more verses. Romans 6.16 Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So, Satan gained Adam's dominion, didn't he? Ephesians 2, verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. You see him working in the air today, don't you? With all of the poison that's in our atmosphere with the weather problems. Anyway, going on. The last verse, John fourteen thirty. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He had nothing in Jesus to respond to him, did he, to his temptations. Christ was pure all the way through. The Savior called him the prince of this world. And the last reference is Desire of Ages, page 123. Is there a paragraph here? Let him who is struggling against the power of appetite... Ooh, this is for me today. Struggling against the power of appetite, look to the Savior in the wilderness of temptation. See him in his agony upon the cross as he exclaimed, I thirst. He has endured all that it is possible for us to bear. His victory is ours. Jesus rested upon the wisdom and strength of his heavenly Father. He declares, The Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Behold, the Lord God will help me. 
pointing to his own example, he says to us, Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that walketh in darkness, and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord, and stay upon his God. The prince of this world cometh, said Jesus, and hath nothing in me. There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin, not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. So it may be with us. Okay, here's our encouragement. Christ's humanity was united with divinity. He was fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he came to make us partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit is his divine nature. We just read that. He was fitted for the conflict. I'm going to read it again. Fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he came to make us partakers of the divine nature. So long as we are united to him by faith, sin has no more dominion over us. God reaches for the hand of faith in us to direct it to lay fast hold upon the divinity of Christ, which is his Holy Spirit, which is his divine nature. It's his divinity that we may attain to perfection of character. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, 679. There, I think there's a paragraph there we should read, and then we'll close. Oh, actually, we'll summarize. Okay. Thus saith the Lord, I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourself. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them to the springs of water, shall he guide them. Jesus is going to guide us. Upon this word Jesus rested, and he gave Satan no advantage. When the last steps of Christ's humiliation were to be taken, when the deepest sorrow was closing about his soul, he said to his disciples, The prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me. The prince of this world is judged. Now shall he be cast out. That must be the second casting out. The first was when he was cast out of heaven, right? The prince of this world is judged. Now when Jesus was crucified, but I think we're reading about that tomorrow. With prophetic eye, Christ traced the scene to take place in his last great conflict. He knew that when he should exclaim, it is finished, all heaven would triumph. Christ rejoiced. Hallelujah. Okay, so I'm going to summarize our what we just learned this morning. So, Satan, or then known as Lucifer, was perfect when he was created. He was full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. He was the covering cherub. He was proud of his beauty. Pride ruined his wisdom. He coveted a higher position. He coveted the throne of God. Other angels were affected. Christ and the loyal angels fought against Satan and his angels. Satan was defeated. He was cast out of heaven. His angels were cast out with him. They were cast to this earth. He caused our first parents to sin. He gained Adam's dominion which was still under Christ. He was prince of the power of the air, and the Savior called him the prince of this world. All right, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you will give us the divine nature, the mind of Christ, the indwelling of thy spirit, the power to overcome and for victory over appetite, which was the fall of our parents. Thank you, Jesus, for this. I pray for those here with me today that they also may experience that you have ultimate authority in their life over every temptation. In your name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. I'll see you in the morning. Tomorrow morning we're studying the second fall of Satan. Have a wonderful, wonderful day, brothers and sisters. God bless you.